The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Out of Office, the podcast about life and leadership. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. Every week, I bring you a conversation with a newsmaker speaking at a Bloomberg Live Summit. This chat, which we record offstage, is freewheeling and it's informal. We go beyond the headlines and talk about things that newsmakers don't get asked about on stage or even in their offices. Their childhood aspirations, mentors, first jobs, their education, their high points, setbacks, downtime, what they want for Christmas, family and love. Because these influences make them who they are and define how they lead. This week... What is great, actually, is when people on the street just come up and say, thank you so much. And I get loads of that. Please keep going. Keep battling for the country. Lots of hoots and toots from the taxi community, the black cabs. Great group of Brexiteers. I get, you know, quite a few of them give me free cab rides. Yeah, you know, you know who your friends are. Meet Richard Tice, member of European Parliament and one of the most divisive figures in British politics. He started his career as a businessman, a property developer, but he's always had one foot in politics. From 2015, he became increasingly involved in Brexit and is a founder of the pro-Brexit groups Leave Means Leave and Leave.eu. In 2019, he became chairman of the Brexit Party, which was founded by politician Nigel Farage just a year ago. It's a young party, but it's making headlines. It was one of the most remarkable elections this country's ever seen, with both Labour and the Tories having historically abysmal results. In last Thursday's European election, Nigel Farage's new Brexit party topped the poll with nearly 32... Richard spoke about all things Brexit at the Bloomberg Invest Summit in London. There's nothing worse than a job half done, badly done. So we're going to leave. We want a clean break Brexit that maximises our negotiating position, it minimises the uncertainty, everyone knows where they stand, and we can get on with our lives and get on with adjusting to a post-Brexit world. That's Richard Tice, the politician. My colleague Ed Stapley caught up with him when he came off stage. They chatted about football. He's a Liverpool fan, his passion for property, his school years, and what Richard Tice wants for Christmas. Here's Ed with the so-called bad boy of Brexit. So, Richard Tice, welcome to uh, this Bloomberg Live podcast. Thanks for joining us. Great pleasure. And um, welcome to Bloomberg's headquarters. Um, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I'm a real estate guy and I've never seen a building like it. It's absolutely amazing. First time here? It is the first time here. I've been to the previous headquarters a number of times. Hopefully it won't be my last time. I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, you know, the canteen's extraordinary. The architecture's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and I gather it's won all sorts of uh, awards. Indeed. And um, I guess Mike Bloomberg had a decision to make um, when choosing where to build his European HQ. And that decision... Uh, predated Cameron's referendum commitment on Britain's membership of the EU uh, in January 2013. Do you think a company looking to set up a headquarters in Europe today 
we'd still 100% go for London. Oh, definitely. You mean a financial services business? For sure. I mean, let's be very clear. Uh, the threat to London, and, and you know, we will have to live with competition in all our business lives. The threat to London is not Frankfurt or Paris. The threat to London is New York and Asia. Your family have been involved in property, I think, for generations. That's right, yeah. Um, and uh, so what, what made you want to continue in that, in that line of work? No, I think, look, um, I, I grew up steeped in uh, a, a, a family of people who are involved in property, my grandfather, my uncle, my cousin. Uh, so, you know, that, that was the natural place to go. I love it. I love the, the attraction of buildings, uh, planning them, designing them, creating them. Uh, and, you know, for me, the pinnacle was, was when I was chief executive of a, uh, a London-listed multinational billion-pound company on the edge of the FTSE 250, a business called CLS Holdings. And, uh, you know, we were designing new buildings. And here in London, uh, we designed a, a very large scheme down in Vauxhall, which included uh, two 50-storey uh, towers. And for me, that was, that was something uh, extraordinary. And they're now uh, underway being built. Yeah, no, fantastic. And so about 30 years in property investment. Um, any regrets in that time? Oh, look, we, we all make mistakes in life. Uh, the key is to learn from them and to try and not make them again and try and make um, you know, more good decisions than bad decisions. But, but the thing, you know, successful people know that you achieve that success by you make a decision and then you monitor it and adjust it. And having got into the world of politics, what I've seen is far too often that actually people in politics and the civil service and, and too many public services are actually not prepared to accept when something's gone wrong and, and quickly change it and adjust it and be open about it as opposed to trying to cover it up or pretend that it's not going wrong. Mm -hmm. And one, one thing that interests me from a finance point of view here, you, you managed to navigate the 2008 financial crisis extremely well. Um, I think you sold a significant amount of the property you had by 2007. Yep. And then bought again at the bottom of the market in 2009. Yep, that's absolutely right. You're very well informed. I'm, I'm very impressed. <laughs> so who were you talking to at the time? And, and how did you have that edge uh, that other people clearly hadn't seen? Uh, to be honest, uh, just gut instinct. Pure gut instinct. Having been involved since, you know, in the markets for, you know, the best part of 20 years. I'd seen a recession in the early 90s. And it, it just felt wrong. You know, every Tom, Dick and Harry amateur was piling into uh, the residential market and the commercial market in the mid-2000s. The banks were doing some extraordinary things. I mean, you know, you could borrow more than 100% on a commercial property loan from the Scottish banks. And that, you just knew in your heart of hearts that was wrong. And people were just bidding ridiculous sums for property. We had a business, we had 100 people. And you know what? It was a private business and we just felt it was wrong. And so we said, let's do the opposite. Let's take a very early view. Um, we went from 100 people down to 15. We did that in 05 by outsourcing lots of our, our, our house building. You know, all those people were able to get jobs because it was still a booming economy, but we de-risked the business. And so by the time the recession hit, basically the business had a pile of cash and no debt. And, you know, um, again, that's, that's long-term gut instinct. And yes, I took, essentially, I paused for a couple of years, did some advisory work in, in the debt world, and then in 2009, I got stuck back into corporate bonds, which were completely mispriced in the real estate sector at a time of distress. And then when I joined CLS in 2010, again, the market was still on the floor, but I could see great buying opportunities. And over a three-year period, we bought over 200 million quid's worth of real estate near the bottom of the market. 
Okay. I want to talk a bit about your journey to getting where you are now and a bit about you know your upbringing. Um, you grew up in the Midlands and attended the uh, private boarding school Uppingham, uh, where you're now the vice chair. What were your, li- your likes and dislikes at school? What were the likes and dislikes? Uh, I, was, uh, I wasn't great on the academic side. I enjoyed the sporting side. You know, Uppingham was a, uh, you know, it was a, it was a pretty sort of tough school back in the late 70s. You know, if you needed to go to the loo, you had to go outside. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, things have changed a lot. But, um, you know, I've always been more of a, believe it or not, I was actually, I'm six foot two now. In in those days, I was actually really quite short. Um, Some people used to call me Titch. So I was hooker in the scrum. Uh, That was always pretty painful. But no, you know, I I got through the the school years, went to university to do a very technical degree. um, But that stood me well in the real estate sector. Now, I don't know if you'll thank me for this, but I, I looked into your A-levels. <laughs> yes. God, I'm and impressed I, by I your noticed, research. It's amazing. I noticed you got uh, two E's. Yes, yeah. One, one in politics uh, and one in maths, but an A in economics. Yes, so there um, we are. Was, was that you waiting your revision? Um, or did you get unlucky with the, with the questions on that? Uh, so, no, being candid, um, I just messed up the revision on politics. Um, so that was just a Horlicks. Uh, my maths teacher and I didn't get on. Um, and I think with maths, you know, like in any subject, you can hit a glass ceiling in something. And for me, um, uh, just after what were then called O-levels, I discovered a bit later, I'd hit the glass ceiling. But economics was what really, you know, I loved it. And in a sense, that interest is what's sort of driven me yeah. ever since. And um, despite the, uh, the poor uh, exam results in politics, I've always had an interest in it, uh, always loved it. And, and here we are. Mm-hmm. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. What was it like growing up in, in the Tice household? Um, were you close to your siblings and, and parents growing up? Yeah, no, um, we, were, we were pretty close. Two of us went to, my brother and I went to the same, uh, the same school, Uppingham. Uh, my sister, uh, she was at a uh, day school and then she went to Gordonston. So yeah, we were you know, pretty close in the holidays. My parents basically were separated from, from the year dot. So, you know, that comes with, with, with different sort of challenges. And but no, I was, you know, I, I was very lucky. Many would say I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth, you know. Uh, I was very lucky. So I'm, I'm very cognizant of, of, of giving something back mm-hmm. and playing my part in, in society. I, th- I think you've got kids of your own. Yeah, um, I've got three kids. Do, do you have political conversations with them uh, around, the, around the dinner yeah, table? Yeah, very or, much or, so, very or, much so. Uh, I've got two boys and a girl. Just the, the, the girl's the only one still at school in her last year. You know, politics obviously is uh, is part of our part of our discussion, and um, you know we agree on some things and, and we disagree on other things. In fact, it was my my second son who helped educate me when he was on his uh, his gap year in uh, in Asia about you know the environmental damage caused by plastics, people just discarding plastics. 
the sort of the plastic mountains he saw on the beaches of, of Vietnam, talking about the plastic island that is in the Pacific Ocean. And, you know, that was really, really educational for me. I was very grateful for that. Mm. If you, thinking back to when you were 20, and uh, is there anything you would wish you knew then that you know now? <sighs> That's a great question. Yeah, uh, lots and lots of things. Networking, just keep talking to lots okay. of people. And funny enough, on the one hand, social media is good for networking, but on the other hand, it's actually very bad for talking. And I probably then wasn't wasn't a great talker, more open networking. Believe it or not, actually, um, I used to be quite shy. And uh, so, you know, walk into a room, I'd sort of slightly sort of uh, stay at the door. But actually, you, you know, you, you make your own luck. You've got to, you know, make your own networking. And you know what? There's nothing like um, knowing people, being able to pick up a phone, and um, uh, build that network of contacts and, and, and build connections. It's amazing uh, how that helps you throughout your working life. Yeah, absolutely. And then you went on to, as you said, Salford University. How do you enjoy that? And, and what do you make of Manchester? Um, Manchester was a very different city then. I mean, it was really tough and Salford was, was very much the rough end of it. But it was a, it was a really uh, diligent uh, technical course I did. Look, to be honest, they used to call me a bit of a sort of southern pufter. Um, and I, I had a Renault 5 Turbo at the time. So, you know, I was known as Dick Turbo. <laughs> but um, no, it was great. I played, uh, I didn't play rugby there. I played soccer. We played in the local leagues. And it was, you know, it was really good for me. I'm probably one of the few people that has been to Strangeway Prison, uh, not once, but twice. I'm pleased to say that was to play football, right. where we played against the, uh, the inmates. And it won't surprise you to learn. You'll probably be pleased to learn. We always had to play away. <laughs> Wow, that must have been interesting. So it where, was. where did you play? Uh, I was goalkeeper. Okay, right. And uh, so at Strangeways Prison, to this day, I never forget, I, I basically uh, fouled an attacker, gave away a penalty, and one of the inmates came up to me and he said, if you know what's good for you, son, you'll let this in. <laughs> <laughs> and you did. And I did. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> okay, very interesting. Um, so then, you know, fast forwarding to where we are now. You've been involved in campaigning, funding and supporting Brexit for many years. You co-founded Leave.eu in 2015. You've been really successful in business and, um, you know, you've got a lot of charitable causes. Why is it so important to you to, to be involved in, in politics now? What, what, what draws you to it? I've always been drawn to it. I've always had an interest in it. I like being involved in well-run businesses. And I have a simple expression. If the country was run as well as a well-managed lean, efficient business, then frankly, we'd all be in a much better place. And I always said to myself, I'd want to do give or take 30 years in business and then try and give something back uh, to public life. What have you made of uh, former Prime Minister David Cameron's new book, On the Record? Uh, quite a candid account of his time in office. I haven't actually read it. I'm sort of hoping someone might give it to me yeah. uh, for Christmas. Right. Generally, I read books on an iPad, but no, it'd be great if someone gives it to me. I've seen some of the serialisation. I think. Um, obviously I have to be grateful to Cameron because he gave us the referendum. What I'm not grateful for was his disgraceful involvement in Project Fear. What he should have done as Prime Minister is he should have basically said, look, this is my view. I'm going to say it a couple of times and then I'm going to act as a, a presidential-style referee and call out both sides if they talk a load of nonsense. If he'd done that, he would still be Prime Minister. He didn't. He got stuck in the weeds. Uh, he chose the wrong side. Uh, he was heavily involved in, in Project Fear, which turned out to be a load of complete nonsense. And the rest is history. So Brexit has divided friends and family throughout the country. Boris Johnson's recently found that. He certainly have, has. Have your friendships or relationships suffered as a result of Brexit? 
are your have you friends with many Remainers at all? Yes, no, I am, and I would say a a sizable chunk of my friends vote. They're, they're what I would call moderate Remain voters. Almost all of them now would actually vote Leave on the basis of democracy and how the EU has behaved since. Where I've actually really lost people on a, on a much more sort of the basis of angst and anger is actually in the business community. I mean, the real estate community in London, you know, I mean, some people have been absolutely, I mean, they've just, just gone off the chart. So, you know, look, stuff happens. And when you put your head above the parapet, and, you know, most in the business community are not brave enough to do that. But if you put your head above the parapet, you know, the grief, the angst, the vitriol comes, it comes over in bucket loads. And, you're, and you're I've a big certainly, uh, do yeah, you, do you I, I use Twitter and yeah, I mean, the abuse is, is hysterical. Uh, it's ridiculous. I don't look at it. My kids do. It upsets them. I'm broad-shouldered. It's the nature of it. W- what is great, actually, is when people on the street just come up and say, thank you so much. And I get loads of that. Please keep going. Keep battling for the country. Lots of hoots and toots from the taxi community, the black cabs. Great group of Brexiteers. I get, you know, quite a few of them give me free cab rides. Yeah, you know, you know who your friends are. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds all right. Um, outside of business and politics, what do you do for fun? Uh, for fun, so over the years, you know, I've played a fair bit of golf. Skiing is my big thing. Mm-hmm. I used to do five-a-side soccer until recently. So I keep um, calling it soccer. What was the yeah, soccer? soccer, football, you know. <laughs> so that, but no, skiing is uh, skiing is my big thing. I've recently got into uh, into cycling and spin classes. I would say I'm sort of moderate at it, stroke, stroke um, a bit of a clueless amateur, yeah. but it's it's great exercise. I love it. Okay, great. And a Liverpool fan as well. Yeah, and Pretty you know, good year at the been been a very patient Liverpool fan over over many decades since the mid seventies. But you know, this could be our year. This Have you really got a favourite player? Have a, well. Over the years, I mean, you know, Dalglish was sort of probably my my hero, but obviously at the moment it has to be Salah. Yes, of course. Uh, and finally. How would you describe yourself in in three words? Goodness me, uh, I'm an optimist. The glass is always half full, it's never half empty. Optimist, optimist, optimist. Optimist, optimist, optimist. Bridget Tice, thank you very much. Great to be here. That was Ed Stapley in conversation with Brexit Party Chairman Richard Tice. I hope you enjoyed that chat as much as I did. Our new podcast series, Out of Office, Conversations About Life and Leadership, launches on January 16th. And you'll be able to catch all the episodes on the Bloomberg Terminal on our website, Bloomberg.com, on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. We are also on Twitter, where our handle is simply at podcasts. We'd love it if you could take a minute to rate and review our show. So please do that if you can. And I really hope you'll join us again for more candid, informal conversations with newsmakers. This episode was produced by Laura Carlson. I'm Malika Kapoor. You can find me at This Is Malika on Twitter. Thank you for listening. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.